This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Omicron might have been around far longer than we originally realized. So we will go in depth on the new COVID variant that is likely already circulating right here in the U.S. Wall Street feeling anxious from the uh, variant and several more factors. We'll take a look at what could be a very rocky month for all of our investment portfolios. And Merck's COVID treatment pill, which was once touted as a potential game changer, goes in front of FDA advisors today for possible emergency use authorization. Both CNN and Chris Cuomo face a serious ethical dilemma. More infos come out about how the host was closely advising his brother, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, as he was engulfed in scandal. The sheriff, Villanueva, and the Board of Supervisors in L.A. County they're back at it again, uh, going up against each other, and then also involving the company that's testing county employees for COVID, and then allegations of data that could go to China, so we'll try and explain that one, and then robots that can self-replicate what could possibly go wrong, but then also, are they actually robots? So we'll talk about that story that's going around. And I can think of maybe a thousand things <laughs> that can go wrong. Yes. No movie has ever ended badly <laughs> for humanity. No. But we uh, begin with... Uh, Omicron, Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician at the University of California, San Francisco. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So uh, the latest news seems to be that the Netherlands is reporting that uh, they have at least, I think it's two cases uh, of the variant in patients that predate the first ones discovered uh, only a few days later, in fact, in South Africa. What does that suggest to you as an infectious disease expert? You know, what that suggests to me is this variant has been circulating, and it, um, I don't know where it originated, but it looks like it's been circulated in Europe even before it got described in South Africa. What South Africa did for us, actually, is figure out a really clean way to look for it, because there's this kind of interesting way to look for it on a PCR test um, before we sequence, and describe it to the world. And they kind of got punished by absolute travel bans on South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and, and and probably it's been circulating in other places uh, for a bit, and, and we have no idea where it came from. Okay, so now at least thanks to them, we can try and figure out where it is now as we go over the next couple of weeks and try and learn some more, Correct. but what could this kind of say to us? Let's say it's been places for a month. Maybe it's either responsible for some of the rises we've been seeing in the case numbers, or maybe it's been around for a month and you can say, hey, maybe it's not going to end up being that bad. I guess those are two things we'll have to see which way it goes. Right. So I actually think that it it probably means two things. It means that um, in highly vaccinated places, we've been seeing very low hospitalizations and severe disease. And that is despite the increasing case numbers in some places in Europe. Severe disease has been protected against if you have a vaccination rate of 75% or above. For example, here in the Bay Area, really, really low hospitalization rates that are 80% um, rates of vaccination. And so nothing has changed over the last month in terms of that protection from severe disease. And most scientists think that these vaccines are going to be just fine in protecting against the Omicron variant in terms of severe disease. Otherwise, we would have seen increasing hospitalizations. Where will increasing hospitalizations be seen with any variant? In places of low vaccination, like South Africa does have a 23% vaccination rate. So increasing hospitalizations could be because of low vaccination rate. So it's good news 
that has been around longer because we haven't seen some suddenly massive breakthrough um, uh, vaccines, for example. They are working, and that's good news. And if it's been around a lot longer, it probably is not going to cause severe waves. You know, I'm also uh, interested in in your thoughts on whether or not even the the metric of hospitalizations uh, is a, a good one to use. And the reason I ask that is because in many countries, people routinely go to hospitals for illnesses that people here in the U.S. would not ever go to a hospital for. In, in this country, we would more typically, if we have a physician anyway, call our doctor and try to get advice. But in some countries, even you know, very uh, industrialized places like the U.K., many people, because of their medical system, just routinely go to the hospital. The problem, you're right, that hospitalizations are misclassified either way, meaning in countries where you go to the hospital, if you have COVID in your nose, you can be mis classified as that being a COVID hospitalization, that that you're there for something else. That has actually happened in this country as well, about 25 to 40 percent of the time, because we screen everyone's nose for COVID. It's not anything we've done for anything else because of infection control purposes. So we don't want anyone to be exposed. So we screen people. So there's misclassification at all elements. The problem is if you go by cases only, um, this is what the vaccines do. They protect us from severe disease, but they may not protect us from mild breakthrough infections or from having asymptomatic COVID in our nose. So if we only go by cases, we're going to act like the pandemics have things are out of control in places when actually severe disease like influenza and COVID are being kept to a low rate. So I think we will have to shift to a hospitalization metric for policy. Well, I, I, I was going to ask, at, at the at the risk of being a bit crass, uh, should we really just be using the metric of death, that, that if we start seeing an increase, substantial increase in people dying, then we know that we are facing a more formidable foe, but just hospitalizations alone might not matter. That's a very fair point if hospitalizations are mischaracterized, which they are and misclassified both in low-income countries and in high-income countries. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. Wall Street, anxious, Again, don't look at your 401k. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, new blood tests could be able to tell you if you're suffering from depression or bipolar disorder. Before that, CNN and Chris Cuomo have a serious ethical dilemma on their hands. Right now, though, if you like roller coaster rides, and who doesn't? <laughs> Me. Wall Street. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Wall Street must seem like a blast over the last few days. If you like stability, though, in your investment portfolio or 401k account, the COVID-driven up and down by traders since last week is probably not a lot of fun at all. Joining us for the Fun Fest is Kriti Gupta, who covers the markets for Bloomberg News. Thanks for being with us. This is a terrible time to look at, at your 401k, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. You're having a rough couple of days. But I mean, put this into some perspective here. You had, if you're invested in the S&P 500, uh, which most of our 401ks are, you have already had over 20% of gain. So a, a pullback of 
say 2% today, it's not going to hurt you in the long term. But yes, today was not a fun day for the market. Yeah, I guess it's just, uh, you know, somewhat psychological. When I see the big red number, I forget that I had a whole year preceding this. It just feels uncomfortable to me. But so what do we have? We have Omicron. That was Friday. And then it's again today. But um, Powell also opened his mouth, right? Yes, he did. So you've got a, a multitude of factors here. I mean, put this into perspective. We're talking about, uh, of course, a COVID pandemic, right? So we are dealing with the Omicron variant, specifically uncertainty. That is the golden rule of the stock market. Essentially, when you don't know what's coming, that's going to be very, very hard for someone, an investor, to know what to buy or what to sell. And that's really at, at the crux of it. The Omicron variant right now, the issue here isn't necessarily that uh, there's a new variant because we've dealt with variants before. It's the Delta variant, for example. Example. What we don't know is the efficacy of the vaccine, the how long it'll take to create one, and whether or not we actually need a new vaccine, and whether or not the spread is bad enough for us to close our borders or go into lockdown. That's something you are seeing in other parts of the world, but not here in the United States. So it's all those unknowns that's driving the market lower. But to your point, you also have the Federal Reserve. Chairman Powell speaking in Congress today talking about cutting back uh, bond purchases at a much faster rate than expected before. And on one side, that's a good thing because it kind of means that the economy doesn't really need that extra support anymore uh, or life support, essentially. Then, But then on the other hand, the markets are kind of addicted to it. So you do see a little bit of a tantrum on that front. But we're going to have these uncertainties that you just ticked off. Uh, vaccine efficacy, uh, how dangerous is this variant? Uh, these uncertainties are probably going to be with us for at least another couple of weeks. So are we likely to, to, to see this continuous turbulence in the, in the markets? Or will investors move in now and think, well, you know, these stocks are pretty cheap and start buying up and bring it back up again? Yeah, well, so to answer two different questions there. First, is this what we're going to see uh, in, in the near term? Yeah, it actually is, because uh, really what markets want to know is a little bit of certainty on the vaccine front or on the Omicron front, which we don't really have the full data. You heard uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci talk about that as well. So we're still waiting for the full information. And on the Fed front, we have a meeting in about two weeks from the Federal Reserve, and that's where we're going to get a little bit more clarity about simply the pace of that life support uh, that they are essentially withdrawing uh, when that comes in January. So for the next two weeks, it's pretty expected that you're going to see a bunch of those market jitters. Inflation for how long, according to Jerome Powell? Does he put a date on? Because he's saying, you know what, we were doing transitory before, but uh, it's probably not the case now because it's been with us for a while. Right. So he's uh, dropped the, the word transitory from his vocabulary at the moment. But something he has said in past meetings was essentially that if in the second or third quarter of 2022, you don't start to see inflation come back down, whether it's through commodity prices or food prices or whatever your metric is, that's really where the Fed is going to be extremely concerned. Based on his testimony today, it seems like those concerns are already seeping into the narrative, but that's the time frame he's given in the past. Kriti Gupta covers the markets for Bloomberg News. Merck's COVID treatment pill goes before the FDA advisors for possible emergency use authorization. We'll tell you all about that when we come back. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. A little bit later in the show, robots that can replicate themselves could soon be a reality. Uh, actually, in one case that we know of now, it is a reality. And what could possibly go wrong with that? 
Also, a COVID testing company is one that is running tests for L.A. County employees sharing sensitive DNA information with China. Right now, though, there's this panel of FDA advisors meeting to consider signing off on the emergency use authorization for Merck's COVID treatment pill, the antiviral pill. It was touted as a possible game changer, but some of the luster might have worn off. Dr. Phyllis Tin, infectious disease specialist at University of California, San Francisco, member of the COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel for the NIH. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So this pill may be not with the efficacy that uh, the early press releases or info from Merck said it was at? Uh, Yes. I mean, once uh, they were able to analyze the full uh, data set, it it looked like it was not as good as your initial press release um, that came out when they had analyzed about half the uh, participants that were in the trial. Okay, and and maybe a lesson, I guess, learned there about medicine by press release, right? Uh, But Mm -hmm. uh, there's also, though, a a genuine concern, is there not, about this particular medication and women who are of childbearing age or who are pregnant? Right, right. Um, There has been a lot of concern about whether or not this drug can be used in pregnant women and you know, I think it's just really unclear, um, you know, about whether or not we could use it in this population. First of all, the, the clinical trials that uh, Merck conducted of this, uh, of this oral antiviral actually excluded um, pregnant women and women who are of childbearing potential were asked to actually take contraception during the trial. Um, so I, I'm not sure we have enough scientific evidence right now for its use in pregnant women. I know, um, as you mentioned, the FDA advisory committee is actively discussing this probably right now as we speak. Um, And I think it's really important to have a discussion about this uh, particular group because pregnant women are vulnerable to progression of COVID-19 disease. Um, but we really need to carefully consider the risks versus the benefits. And, you know, I, I think that's uh, something the FDA is deliberating about today. There is also the Pfizer pill. What kind of track is that on versus this one? And does the efficacy of that, so far as we know, uh, hold up better? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question, because what we know, I think, about the Pfizer drug was also in a press release. Um, so I think we'll hear more about that drug. But for the press release, it looked like um, the reduction in hospitalizations and death after taking this oral pill uh, looked a little bit better. Now, am I correct also, uh, doctor, that the Pfizer pill in terms of any potential issues with, with, say, pregnant women, might be less of an issue or no issue because isn't that based on medication that has now long been used to treat HIV, whereas the Merck pill is a much more novel technique? You're absolutely right. Um, Yeah, so the Pfizer drug is a protease inhibitor, and we have used protease inhibitors to treat people living with HIV and also with hepatitis C. Um, And the drug also has to be used in combination with another protease inhibitor, which is one that we uh, definitely have used in people with HIV. Um, So we do know more about that drug. Um, So yeah, hopefully it'll have uh, uh, more promise. 
Are these for or aimed at, you know, the unvaccinated who get COVID or would they still be for vaccinated people who are getting some sort of breakthrough case? I I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we would try to, we should try to consider it in people who have breakthrough um, infection as well as people who have infection that, you know, are, are not vaccinated. I do know, for example, that the Merck clinical trial, I believe it was done in people who were not vaccinated, but I see no reason why it could not really be used in, in anyone who, who has COVID infection. Are you concerned, uh, and I've asked this question of some other experts when we've talked about these these meds, that uh, for those people who are still, you know, for whatever their reasons, vehemently anti-vaccination, that those people are going to say, you know what, uh, now I don't need to get vaccinated because if I do get COVID, I'll just pop one of the Merck pills or maybe one of the Pfizer pills and all will be well. Yeah, that, that's a great question. But we do make, need to, to make a distinction right now because the you know Merck drug that is being discussed today at the FDA is for people who are already, you know, I guess infections. So yeah, we still want vaccines are still the way to go in terms of preventing um, you know, bad disease uh, if you get it. And I think there is also um, you know, the ability to actually prevent transmission. Um, so I, you know, I really want to emphasize that vaccines are still the way to go. Um, you know, as you have seen with the, the Merck drug, um, you know, in the beginning, we thought you know, there might be a you know, risk reduction of 50%. Now with more data, it's 30%. So we know that the vaccines, um, with the efficacy of the vaccines, it is well above 50%. Um, so I would still uh, highly advocate for getting vaccine. Dr. Phyllis Tien, infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco. Well, coming up, turns out CNN host Chris Cuomo is more closely advising his brother, the former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, without ever disclosing that on his show. So when we come back, we are going to go in depth on that. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So we already knew that uh, CNN host Chris Cuomo played an advisor role to his brother, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, in the midst of the scandals that eventually uh, booted his administration from Albany. That by itself, a dilemma for Cuomo and CNN, so they tried to set out some ground rules. But now it turns out the advising for the brother was uh, far more involved than we knew. Yeah, Cuomo was reportedly digging up dirt on many of the women who had accused former Governor Cuomo of sexual harassment. And yet, Chris Cuomo continues to host his nightly CNN show as if nothing has changed. Kathleen Bartson Culver is the uh, chair in journalism ethics and director at the Center for Journalism Ethics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Journalism and Mass Communication. She's also an opinion writer for USA Today. Thanks for being with us. Oh, happy to be here. So it, it sounds like CNN has a huge problem on its hands. Uh, do you agree with that? And if you do, what do they do about it? 
Well, they they not only have, but they have had. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested that uh, that action wasn't taken this summer when it became clear that um, Chris Cuomo's involvement in his uh, brother's problems was more severe than he had um, originally admitted and shared with his viewers. Uh, so, you know, the problem that CNN has on its hands now is the same as the one it had this summer. It's just going to be very interesting to see whether they take different action. It's almost like the line was pushed each time and they tried to come up with a solution and then it failed each time. I wonder if we go all the way back to the original policy, which was you guys don't interview each other. And he was never on the show until the COVID pandemic was here. And then uh, Governor Cuomo was in the light and then they were interviewing each other and it became this whole thing because I think CNN realized it was good TV, right? So once that was crossed, then we get to the next step, which is, okay, you can advise him on a family level, but don't put it on the show. But then we get to this next step. And now we have a series of problems. Right. You know, I I was among the camp of the very shocked uh, when um, the Cuomo brothers were on CNN together. I thought it crossed a line back then. I was accused by some of being, uh, you know, just being um, uh, too down in the mouth about the whole thing. But I think it did mark a change in how um, CNN was treating this relationship. I, I think the idea that he that Chris Cuomo could um, separate himself from this simply by saying he will not uh, interview his brother or cover his brother's uh, political tra- travails uh, is a you know on its face maybe a mild assurance to the audience, but it's clear that Chris Cuomo didn't even hold fast to those those lines. Uh, so this goes well beyond what was initially communicated to the public and uh, what Chris Cuomo himself admitted to uh, last spring. Now, I, I don't know if, if CNN is going to take this line, but I suspect that they might. Uh, and they might say, look, uh, Chris Cuomo, what he did was wrong. I uh, shouldn't have done that. But he's not actually a news anchor in the sense of, uh, you know, the, one of the network anchors for the nightly news. He's a personality. He hosts a, what amounts to a news talk show. So the rules are different. Do you buy that if that's their argument? Well, the difference between, you know, so that's a line, for instance, that uh, Sean Hannity has used on Fox saying that he does not consider himself a journalist, that he is is of another order. Uh, But uh, Chris Cuomo does call himself a journalist to his audience. And in fact, you know, in his initial sort of apology, but more actually an explanation to the audience in which he was not transparent about the totality of his involvement, he called himself a journalist. So, you know, the average viewer of CNN CNN would be, you know, very um, uh, well grounded in concluding that he is a journalist. So I, I don't buy that line. There seems to be one way of trying to explain it, saying, OK, I was looking to see if anybody else was coming out, um, if there were any more allegations. But I wasn't like oppositioning, opposition researching these people. So is that a valid excuse or even, you know, feeling out your sources is still using your journalism skill set. So you're crossing barriers there. Yeah, I think I I liken it to, um, you know, instead of thinking about these two as a political figure and um, a a cable news journalist slash host, um, think about it in terms of a business reporter covering mergers and acquisitions. Um, So if that business reporter is trying to figure out whether the competition is going to break news um, before him, that's one thing. But if that business reporter is trying to figure out whether the competition is reporting on his brother, the CEO, 
that's an entirely different level. Um, and it's 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 extraordinary, not ordinary, as Chris Cuomo seems to be trying to say it is. Now, let me point out here that we did reach out to CNN for comment or for an interview with Chris Cuomo. They did not respond. So let me ask you this then. Um, What's the solution in your view? Does CNN at this point have to sever its relationship with Chris Cuomo? That would be my solution, but uh, that would have been my solution in the summer. And I was surprised that we didn't see a more uh, a more straightforward and serious reaction from CNN. So I'm going to be like everybody else and, and waiting to see what the next few days of review bring and uh, where they land. But at a time of really um, troubling levels of public trust in journalism, I think CNN needs to think about not just the ratings for Cuomo's show, but all the, also the larger impact on journalism overall. Kathleen Bartson Culver, chair in journalism at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and also opinion writer for USA Today. When we come back, the latest dust-up between L.A. County's sheriff and its board of supervisors involves a potential issue of handing over sensitive DNA information to China. You're probably going, huh? We'll explain. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Now, this is a very complicated story, so take notes if you're driving, <laughs> yes. just listen. Pull over and turn <laughs> up the radio. Yeah. <laughs> We're going there, to explain it all. So here, here it is. There's this company called Fulgent Genetics, and it is handling the COVID testing for L.A. County employees who don't want to get vaccinated against the virus. Now, apparently over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, the FBI briefed Sheriff Alex Villanueva on possible security concerns involving Fulgent. The concern that Fulgent was allegedly capturing DNA information of COVID testing subjects and handing that or potentially handing that over to China. Now, sources have told us on in-depth that the briefing did in fact take place, a fact that seemed to be in contention at one point. And the FBI did raise issues regarding Fulgent and the potential sharing of genetic material with China. Now, this new information is being used by Sheriff Villanueva in his ongoing resistance to having his sheriff deputies submit to L.A. County's COVID vaccination and testing requirement. Meantime, the County Board of Supervisors is dismissing the sheriff's concerns. They argue Villanueva is just continuing his stubborn opposition to the county's vaccine mandate. Now, here's what Fulgent Genetics has said to all this. They've issued a response. They say they are an American company with the leadership comprised of U.S. citizens and uh, does not and will not share any genetic information with China or any unauthorized contacts. Uh, Fulgent also says they don't collect or sequence any DNA from COVID testing subjects and the tests are destroyed within 48 hours. So that is all of that. That's the, right. And, <laughs> and, and, but there's a little bit more in-depth. We, we asked several L.A. County supervisors to come on today's show. They were all unavailable. Sheriff Villanueva turned down our request to talk with us, as did Fulgent Genetics. Dr. Howard uh, uh, Hu chairs the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at the USC Keck School of Medicine. He and his team at USC have been working on COVID surveillance in partnership with L.A. County over the last year. Doctor, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So let's talk about, and I know that you know nothing about this whole controversy, uh, except perhaps for what we just uh, <laughs> said, uh, but let's talk about the feasibility 
of uh, testing for COVID, which is what this is all about, after all, people being tested for COVID, in this case, sheriff's deputies in L.A. County, and whether that material somehow can be used for uh, DNA sequencing and for what purpose would one want to do that anyway? Yeah, the whole thing's a bit of a mystery to me. Um, you know, typically when you get COVID testing, uh, you get a, a special test called polymerase chain reaction tests or antigen testing for um, the viral antigens, that is the proteins that exist on, on the viruses. Uh, but there's nothing about that test that would uh, involve um, extracting DNA from the recipient of the test. Um, and the only way that I could conceive that happening is if uh, whoever was submitting the nasal swab sample or the saliza sample gave it to someone who then split the sample and used half of it to try to uh, pull out the uh, the cells, uh, typically the cheek cells of the recipient or uh, the nasal uh, lining epithelial cells, and then does a whole nother procedure of DNA extraction uh, to get DNA. Um, so, you know, theoretically, it's possible, I guess. Uh, it seems uh, rather unlikely on, in, in the conventional testing that's being that is uh, typically done. And for what purpose, I have no idea. How much of my other info is attached to these past, you know, like my name or birthday or whatever it is, like health insurance uh, information that maybe I signed up to get the test for uh, that goes along with it? Yeah, no, typically it's just a uh, unique identifier. Um, and then that information goes straight to the... Um, the uh, company or the uh, manager who has ordered the test or the consumer, uh, and that's it. It's not even typically uh, linked to a medical record or anything else that contains private uh, information unless the recipient of the test has, has signed a, a HIPAA waiver that specifically allows that. Let's, for the sake of argument, say that uh, for whatever reason, they, they get uh, uh, DNA. In this case, the allegation is potentially uh, China. Uh, what would you learn from these DNA samples anyway that would be of any value? Um, well, it's, you know, that's kind of a mystery to me, too. I mean, DNA is typically used uh, in the public sphere for things like uh, identifying individuals in a criminal case or in a missing persons case or in the healthcare uh, sphere for identifying genes that might, might put people at risk for particular diseases or conditions um, or for ancestry things, you know, uh, linking you with potential ancestors or, you know, for paternity suits. Uh, but other than that, it's Hard to see how that becomes a national security problem. I was going to say, is this something that we should, you know, have our radars up against and be protective of, you know, my DNA? Because to your last point there, how many people have, have given over their info as a Christmas present because someone got them one of those test kits to see who they're related to? Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a common thing now. I mean, people can order it from companies like 23andMe and and get, uh, you know, the DNA tested mostly for ancestry purposes. That's a very common thing these days. 
but you know, other than that, it's hard to understand how it would be of strategic use. Dr. Howard Hu chairs the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at uh, USC Keck School of Medicine. So I trust everybody has now taken notes. And you can compare. Test later. Multiple (laughs) choice. We'll test later on. All right. More in-depth is on the way. Another half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman of the Quick Blood Test. Your doctor can search for markers of physical diseases like coronary heart disease or diabetes, but what if a blood test could indicate issues in mental health as well? Yeah, there's a research team from the Indiana University School of Medicine that's developed um, psychiatry's first ever biological test for diagnosing mood disorders, namely bipolar and depression. Not only can the test distinguish between the two, but can help match patients to the right meds. With us now is Dr. Alexander Nicolescu. I think I got that right, but we'll find out in a second, who's a professor of psychiatry at the Indiana University School of Medicine, who led the research for this study. Doctor, I hope I got your name at least close to being right. Yes, no, it was close <laughs> enough. I mean, uh, if you can pronounce Schwarzenegger, you can pronounce Nicolescu. Okay. Uh, uh, so glad to be with you. Glad, glad to have you. So, so tell me a little bit about, uh, actually tell me a lot about this blood test, because the notion that you can get a blood test perhaps to indicate some uh, uh, mental issues as opposed to just finding out, as we said, uh, whether or not your cholesterol is high sounds odd to some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounded odd to us when we first started this work uh, a couple of decades ago. And uh, it was uh, just one of those, um, you know, uh, long shot projects in science that you do as a way of uh, pushing the boundaries. So this is not sort of an overnight success type of work. We've worked on this for over a decade, and uh, we were eventually successful in finding a um, a set of molecules in the blood that track mood states. And uh, basically, uh, there we are now with this test. And as you mentioned, um, you know, conceptually is very similar to uh, what's um, being um, used in diabetes, where you get the hemoglobin A1C for, uh, you know, for measuring uh, whether you're doing well or not and so on. Um, it's more complex than that. It can also match people to medications. Um, and uh, if repeated over time, you can see if you're responding well to treatment or not. Okay, so, so just that, like some of the other things, to, to symbol it down, you're looking for certain markers, and when, once you see those, you've now matched those to either bipolar or depression. Tell me about the second part, which is you know, splitting those apart and figuring out the right medications and how much of a game changer that is. Because for some people, maybe you're only catching the depressive of manic depressive or bipolar disorder, and it can take you years to figure out what you're supposed to be on and where you're supposed to be at. Yeah, you're exactly right about it. I'm also a practicing psychiatrist. I see complex cases referred from all over to my university clinic. And, you know, there's often this uh, mistaken diagnosis. People present with depression, and it's assumed to be just depression, and they have bipolar disorder. Tried on, um, you know, one, two, three, four, five antidepressants. They're not responding well, or they become worse, agitated, suicidal. So I think it's very important early on to uh, use markers like ours to be able to see whether somebody is, um, you know, just depression uh, versus whether they have a propensity to bipolar disorder. And uh, 
the medications would be very different. You would use a mood stabilizer primarily if they have a propensity to bipolar disorder, and you would use an antidepressant uh, without uh, too much concern if it's just depression. Again, you know, we have to be cautious. So, you know, we're not making a diagnosis. The doctors make the diagnosis. We just provide them information, just like with any other lab tests in medicine, you know, troponin in cardiology, a PSA or prostate, you know, hemoglobin A1C and so on, figure test. We just provide information to the doctors and then in the context of them knowing the patient, using their clinical judgment and so on, they use that information as they see fit. So this is not a diagnostic test per se. It is a, a test that tracks mood and provides some inform objective information, which is a sort of a big breakthrough in terms of mood state, in terms of risk for that mood state to switch in the other direction. Now, the matching with medications, again, is based on over a decade of work where we've looked at the gene expression studies, the effects of medication on different genes. We've also um, deeply mined all the existing literature for connections between expression of genes and medications, and we build these large databases where um, you know, we can use these biomarker signatures to match people to the right um, medication, almost like one of those FBI fingerprint profiles. <laughs> Dr. Alexander Nicolescu, professor of psychiatry, Indiana University School of Medicine, uh, led the research over the uh, decades. Doctor, thanks for talking to us. You know, we uh, mentioned at the beginning of the show we were talking about that Merck COVID pill, and mm -hmm. there was a whole FDA. They were working they on were it. Working on it, and and just to to as a footnote, uh, the uh, advisory panel to the FDA has now backed, given the green light, to that pill. So if the full FDA uh, actually, and they usually do, go along with the advisory thing, then it's a short amount of time when uh, these pills, the the Merck pill anyway, might be available to the general public for COVID treatment. When we come back, robots that can reproduce themselves. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A team of scientists created the first living robots called Xenobots that can reportedly reproduce. However, this form of reproduction is entirely different than any other type known to animals or plants. Sounds like my family. <laughs> <laughs> to break all this down is Christina Agapakis. She's the synthetic biologist and creative director of Ginkgo Bioworks, the company that created these uh, self-replicated robots. Uh, Christina, thanks for being with us. So, uh, first, a couple questions. Let's start with the living robot thing, because maybe that's a clue as to what these are. And then these headlines that are screaming, the robots are here and they're capable of reproducing, and it's a terrifying sci-fi movie. Um, what actually are these things? So first, let me make uh, clarify that Ginkgo is not related at all to this project. Um, I, uh, I'm a synthetic biologist, like you said, um, and love all things that connect biology and technology. Um, so I'm speaking in my capacity as, as, a, as a fan, um, and I've, I've spoken to uh, the creators of this project, um, one of them, Mike Levin from Tufts University. Um, so it's, it's a group of researchers from Tufts, uh, the Wies Institute at Harvard, uh, and uh, the University of Vermont, who are all collaborating to try to uh, use biology in this way and, 
and sort of rethink uh, what a robot could be uh, if it were alive in, in a way. Okay, uh, so, so yeah, apologies for that. Clear, not a um, project. <laughs> but tell us what this is, because I think of a robot, or I think of one of these, like, uh, if I was watching a sci-fi movie, a nanobot, like a little tiny thing that's built and it's uh, moving around on its own and it's now capable of creating itself and, and rising up against humanity. But what are <laughs> these? So these are actually just little like tiny balls of cells that come from a frog. Uh, so they, they speak a lot in the paper actually about sort of liberating these cells from the frog embryo uh, and then asking them to sort of reimagine their multicellularity. So what happens to these cells when they're sort of separated from the frog embryo um, and sort of clumped together another way? How might they behave differently um, in a new context? And so that's all they are. They're just like simple, these little clumps of cells. And what they find is when they're allowed to sort of clump together again, they have all of these interesting behaviors. They can sort of wiggle and move around. They can interact with each other. Um, they can be programmed actually to do different things depending on their shape uh, and the types of cells that are part of them. So what, uh, so, so what, so what would, in a practical uh, sense, what would eventually these be used for? So the researchers, they imagine things like, could you have things like these sort of floating around inside of the body and finding cancer cells? They can sort of detect and maybe uh, do something like destroy, you know, deliver a medicine to, to, ca to cancer cells. Uh, I, I heard Mike Levin say like, oh, they could sculpt uh, inside of an arthritic knee. They could actually be performing like microsurgeries. Um, so you can begin to imagine these kinds of like really sort of far future kind of scenarios where these robots are kind of performing surgeries or doing things things in, in different environments where right now our machines are, are like, you know, technological machines made out of metal and, and whatever, like they, they wouldn't be able to do something. Like okay. That. So I imagine that's like far future. Uh, but what, what can they do now? They can spin around in circles and they can clump together and they can do stuff, which I guess to the scientific community is still fascinating because they're detached from anything they, they thought or knew that they were, not that they think, uh, yeah. but they're out there doing their own thing. They're doing their own thing. Um, so I think you you said it exactly. They roll around, they 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 wiggle around, they make little circles, they clump other cells up. And so what was actually super fascinating from this paper um, out today was they realized that when they sort of circle around and, and, and clump up other cells that are sort of lying around in the Petri dish, that they can sort of squeeze them tighter and tighter together. And eventually those clumps themselves become one of these robots. But, but you, so they're effectively like reproducing themselves uh, by like sculpting more xenobots out of the loose cells inside of the petri dish. So you mentioned like one of the possible uses is is I would like swallow one and it would go through my body. And to probably look for a things. whole bunch of them. Yeah, a whole bunch of them, and they would. Re <laughs> they're very tiny. Yeah, but other than what I had for like breakfast, do I want something inside me reproducing? Oh, <laughs> probably not. So I don't think you would want it reproducing inside of your body. Uh, but but it wouldn't be able to sort of find other frog cells to clump up inside of your body, right? So it would be they you know they would live for a short time. They would do the, the thing that they're supposed to do, um, and maybe they would go away. And right, so that that might be one of the benefits of something like this when you think about it as an application. Um, and so there's there's other kind of really interesting uh, research happening like this in the pharmaceutical industry too of of using cells, uh, living cells 
as, as medicines, like to do things inside of the body, whether they're bacteria in your gut uh, or, or sort of immune cells that are able to target cancer cells. Um, you might have heard of something like cell therapy or CAR T therapy. Um, so that kind of thing is happening. It looks a little bit different. They're not quite robots. They're, 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 sim they're single cells, uh, but they, uh, this kind of thing is happening. And yeah, you, you don't want them reproducing inside your body. How long do they live? I mean, how many times can they recreate themselves? Do they so eventually the, peter out these little guys? Yeah, these xenobots, it looks like from the paper, they were able to, um, they, they, on their own, sort of the first generation of them were only able to sort of reproduce one time, I think, um, was what I read. Um, but then what was really interesting was they actually uh, used uh, an artificial intelligence algorithm, AI, to be able to uh, optimize the shape of these little guys, these robots, so that they would be better at reproducing themselves. Um, so they they used this this algorithm that was able to say, okay, if the shape was different, would it be able to clump them better? Would it be able to do it faster? Would it be able to, you know, how how would it be a sort of optimally uh, shaped in order to be able to be uh, to to reproduce better? Uh, and they were able to make it go, I think, a few more times, a few more generations before it petered out. Are these things at least cute? <laughs> uh, they're little blobs. I I find them cute because I find cells cute inside the petri dish, and so and then and, and the fact that they sort of wiggle and move around. But yeah, they're just little. They're little blobs. Yeah, the videos. Go watch the the, the mock up on yeah, the. Yeah, it sounds. Yeah, yeah. Floating around the petri dish, doing their own thing, which makes them robots, living robots. Uh, Christina Agapakis, a synthetic biologist. Uh, thanks for explaining all that. Yeah, to but us. To, but to her point, I I don't want to have one reproducing inside me. No, I just don't. <laughs> I'm no, putting my foot down. No frog cells. <laughs> no, not at all. All right. Well, we'll wait 50 years and see what they do. All right. Uh, more in-depth tomorrow at 1 p.m.